This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Good afternoon. I'm Gita Anand, Interim Dean and Professor of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. Welcome to the special Berkeley Journalism event. Today's event brings together a recent graduate of our program, Jess Alvaringa, in conversation with Bay Area author Roberto Lovato. I'd like to thank our co-sponsors, the Latinx Research Center at UC Berkeley and the NAHJ student chapter here at UC Berkeley and lecturer Deirdre English for their efforts in putting forth this timely event. Lovato's book has been hailed in the New York Times in a review by the writer Carolyn Forche, who said the story of the U.S. and El Salvador is a complex puzzle indeed, and Lovato is among the first Salvadoran American writers to assemble it, shuttling back and forth in time between countries and languages to retrieve the pieces for a kaleidoscopic montage that is at once a family saga, a coming-of-age story, and a meditation on the vicissitudes of history, community, and most of all for him, identity. Today marks the first time that Lovato has been interviewed by a Salvadoran journalist. And now, let me turn it over to Jess Alvaringa. Jess, take it from here. Thank you. Thank you, Yita. And thank you, Latinx Research Center and to my alma mater, Berkeley J School, for hosting this event. Uh, I'm so ex super excited to be here with the wonderful Roberto Lovato. Uh, a little bit about Roberto. Roberto is a Salvadoran storyteller, journalist, former FMLN guerrillero, and all-around Cipote Guanaco. He is the author of a new book titled Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. His work has been featured in Guernica, the Boston Globe, Foreign Policy, The Guardian, just to name a few. Unforgetting has received glowing reviews from the New York Times, New Week, and Newsweek, and the In the Thick podcast, and more. Roberto, bienvenido. Um, thank you, Jessica. It's uh, my honor to be with you, with the J School at my alma mater, Berkeley, and, uh, uh, you know, who I thank for the co-sponsorship, along with uh, Dean Gita Anand. Thank you to Deirdre uh, English, who helped uh, bring this together, and obvious special, another special thanks to the Latinx Research Center under the leadership of Laura Perez, and a very, very, very super duper special thanks to Angela Marino, who's uh, been a big part of my journalistic and other life for many years. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to be back with Berkeley. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And um, just like 
uh, Gita mentioned, um, uh, this is a super historic moment. This is one of the first time, or the first time that a Salvadoran journalist is uh, going to be interviewing you um, and just talking about what's happening in El Salvador. Um, two Alvarengas at that, because uh, my last name is Alvarenga. Your mother's last name is Alvarenga, you know, so uh, remind me to check our Ancestry.com to see if we're long lost cousins or something. We're, yeah, we're both standing members in good standing of the Pupusa Gentia. <laughs> exactly. And I'm trying to keep it that way. <laughs> yeah. So. A little bit about unforgetting. Unforgetting is a journey through the underworlds that have remained fragmented until now. Roberto brings us along to navigate the terrain of family secrets, unmarked graves that remain uninvestigated, and the nation's violent past overshadowed by the more immediate contemporary violence. And my favorite part, Roberto, is how you make all of these connections to uncover your own traumas and in turn, unforgetting. So the book is written in several different narrative styles. There's some chapters that read as though it were a journal through different parts of your life when you were an adolescent, mm -hmm. when you're a rebellious teenager. Um, I love the fact that your biggest rebel rebellion was to be an evangelico. I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I also used to be a Bible banger. Um, so we've been there. Mm -hmm. um, other parts of the book feel like a memoir, and some serve as a historical text, and others like investigative journalism. And you're actually going to bless us with a reading of the book today, so I'm super excited about that. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, picked a section from chapter 28. That's great. Yeah. But before we begin, I do want to give everyone a heads up that at times we'll be talking in detail about graphic violence and the war. I wanted to offer a trigger warning to make sure everyone can take care of themselves during our conversation. And the chapter that Roberto is about to be to read is especially graphic. Yeah, let me uh, lay the context uh, for this chapter, it's uh, later in the book. I'm uh, the book is it's like you said, a journey through different underworlds, the underworlds of the guerrillas, the underworlds of the gangs, the underworlds of our family histories and secrets, the underworlds of the secrets of nations, the things that countries don't like for us to know. I mean, which is theoretically how you get a president like Donald Trump, for example. Right. You have all this accumulated things you deny. You're going to get something like that. It's kind of a kind of the Jungian shadow coming back to bite us. And so I'm uh, in El Salvador. I'm actually stopping my journalistic um, journey in El Salvador to discover, figure out what makes kids so violent. Because that was the main purpose in the, in the present day part of my story, which is I'm there to try to understand after uh, seeing kids in, you know, immigrant prisons. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I have a driver who's with me who's been with me throughout the journey of the book. And he's taking me to see, uh, to, to, to go to my father's homeland in Aguachapan, in the Western coffee growing region, which has seen a lot of violence and terror and, and a lot of coffee. They go together, violence, terror, and coffee. Yeah. And so, um, so uh, uh, you know, he's, we're driving and, and, you know, I've been asking him about like his past a little bit and it's trickling out just to kind of, you know, you're driving for an hour, two hours, three hours. And so his name's Isaias. And so um, let me start. 
You know, boss, he says, tilting his head back as he takes a deep breath, signaling he wants to talk. I was thinking about those questions you asked me about the special forces. Yes. Well, and he says yes as a military person. Um, uh, yes. So I brought you some pictures I wanted to show you. Check them out. They're in the glove compartment. I open the glove compartment, lift the car registration papers and the 38 he has on top and pull out a plastic, plastic sandwich bag containing photographs. Inside are five pictures. From, a, from the faded colors of the pictures, I guess they were taken sometime in the mid to late 80s. They're from my training, he says with a hint of pride in his smile. It took a lot for us to graduate. The picture on top of us is of a younger, thinner, shirtless Isaias standing beside another guy. They're standing on a grassy field wearing bandanas and fatigues. Their faces painted green and holding M16 rifles. In the background is a smiling, unidentified child in a red shirt photobombing. Behind them sits a big white building with windows framed by barbed wire. That was our graduation, he says. Another picture shows him fully suited in military fatigues as if, in, as if gearing up for battle, seated in the back of an army truck. That's us going to combat. I look to see where we are on Ruta Ocho and see we're near Lourdes Colon. See there, boss, he says, pointing towards the city on our right. That's where we had dinner at my house. You remember? Yes. The image of Isaias playing soccer in the dusty street in front of the, his house with Saulito, his six-year-old, comes to mind. As we ate the casamiento and chicharrones, cracklings, his wife, Aide, had cooked, Isaias talked about how soccer, family outings, and the occasional whipping were the trifecta of parental discipline necessary to raise his boy in a gang-controlled neighborhood like Lourdes Colon. The former kid soccer player in me smiled, even as my inner beaten child cringed. That one we took when we were with the trainers, he says, pointing down toward the next photograph in my hands, Los Americanos. I look at the photograph. In it, Isaias is crouching next to a tree. He's stripped down to his army green underwear, his green army underwear. He's wearing a bandana and his face is painted as he looks directly into the camera. In a semicircle around Isaias are seven of his fellow soldiers other special forces trainees, all with painted faces and bandanas and all stripped down to their underwear. Isaias and another guy next to him are holding big gray tin cups. Above them, a bleeding corpse is hanging from a tree. I realize it's a dog when the skin has been, whose skin has been peeled off, leaving only a dark strip on the reddened snout showing it, had, it once had black fur. Its throat had been slit and its blood is dripping into one of the cups. Isaias is looking straight at the camera. For once, he's not smiling. His arms and lips are covered in blood. The trainers watched as our commanders told us, number three, you will not graduate unless you drink the dog's blood, Isaias says. He has on the same nervous smile he wore when we were in the dangerous gang country. So we had no choice. The colonel told us, I will tell up your diploma if you don't. 
I've read death squad manuals prepared by US trainers and heard the stories of Esquadron activities. I've gotten to know death squad operatives like a guy named Leonardo who had turned away from the Esquadrones and started volunteering with Carecen back when I first met my partner G in San Francisco. This, feels, this still feels hor horrifically surreal. I study the picture and listen with the same morbid fascination that sells horror movies and newspapers. But my interest is also anthropological, a study in the ritual of dehumanization and murder that has been destroying Salvadoran life for centuries. Number three, the trainer would call me. Isaias continues, it's your turn to hang the dog, the first dog. So I breathed in and, and went at it. I put the knife there in the neck and cut the vein. He points to the spot on his own neck. Diablito, I want you to make sure you don't lose a drop of blood, no waste, not one drop, the trainer said. Son of a bitch, it was so disgusting. After getting the blood, I put the cup up to my mouth and quickly swallowed. It tasted salty, the blood of that animal, salty like you can't imagine. Ours is sweet by comparison. It was like drinking seawater. It's even worse when it, as it coagulates. Almost 30 years after his special forces training, his body still trembles in disgust. It becomes like gelatin. I was lucky since I was still fresh, he says. Some guys had to drink it dry in un pocillo, a cup. Afterward, they ordered us to cut up the dog, cook the meat, and make the soup with intestines and bones. I swallow and try to calm my nausea with deep breaths. Vomit bubbles up my throat. I ask Isaias to pull over so we can get something to drink. We stop at a fresco stand. The greenery all around us soothes me until I regain enough calm to hear the voice inside me that says, you wanted to understand what turns kids into killers, here's your chance. The desire to avoid any more gory details collides with the need to understand why he did it. Still, I can't quite make myself ask this question outright for fear of shaming him into silence. Instead, I ask, why do you think they made you do that? It was part of our special forces commando training that lasted three months, he says. I think they put us through it for different reasons. Like what? To give us the will we needed to kill. Also for survival. To train us to search and find food wherever we could. What to do if we were captured by gorillas. They pulverize you until you submit. How many of you participated? The course started with 40 soldiers. We finished with 25. Others deserted. Those pulverize and submit parts he's talking about are important aspects of the re-education provided to Salvadoran and other soldiers by trainers at the School of the Americas in Georgia, at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and at other Pentagon facilities. Isaias was trained in El Salvador by Salvadoran officers who had been trained at the School of the Americas and were supervised by U.S. officers sent to the country as part of the Pentagon's aid program. Like any other boot camp or police academy, the rigorous physical and mental training of the Salvadoran military is designed to turn a person unaccustomed to killing and a person disposed to kill for a higher purpose defined by his or her controllers. The forging of this identity is accomplished in two ways, one overt and one covert. The overt training described in the course catalogs of these facilities is designed to transform grunts like Isaias into, quote, professional soldiers. Soldiers steeped in and guided by the doctrine of just war. On the surface, 
The just war curriculum, ISIS and other soldier studies looks innocuous with courses in human rights and special and civil, civil military operations and resource management. Beneath the surface, however, the curriculum has a darker purpose. In the words of Leslie Gill, a scholar who studies the military training taught at the School of the Americas, the just war thesis is a tactical anodyne that obscures the horrors of war through its emphasis on the responsible use of violence by military professionals. Images of the professional soldier engaged in the good fight enhance the virility and heroism of men who sacrifice their personal safety to fight a malicious enemy for the greater benefit of the nation. They also permitted officers to distance themselves from their humble origins and to disassociate from the real terror of actual violence, which was passed off to frontline soldiers from ethnic and racial minorities of supposedly inferior intellect. Wow, powerful. Thank you so much for reading that chapter. Um, and as we uh, come later on to find out is that part of the chapter or the, where you and Isaias were headed to was to uh, actually interview two witnesses of La Matanza. Um, and you were researching the history of La Matanza, but while doing that, you are also confronted by the contemporary violence of the 1980s, which is um, everything that Isaias went through, but also confronted by um, the violence that is happening today. Um, so that brings me to my first question. Uh, I want to start at the beginning of the end with La Matanza. In 1932, somewhere between 10 to 30,000 indigenous people in El Salvador were sla slaughtered by the state making the Matanza one of the most violent episodes in modern era. Um, and in the chapter uh, that you just read, you interviewed two of the survivors of La Matanza. So I wanna ask, how does the silence around La Matanza inform the silence around the civil war and uh, the, around the gangs of today? Well, if I could answer that question, Jess, I'd get a PhD at Berkeley. Uh, <laughs> that's a great question, but I won't pretend to, to answer it with any, uh, you know, profundity like, like it demands. But um, yeah, that's one of the things that the book is about. The book is about, say, the, the umbilical connection that many of us as Salvadoreños and Salvadoreñas have to our past, the past of extreme violence. Like you said, La Matanza in 1932 was an indigenous rebellion when people got tired of seeing their kids dying and, you know, the usual causes of revolution, which are poverty, the death of children, especially, and uh, repression. And so the indigenous people rebelled and a guy named El General Maximiliano Martinez uh, used it to not just slaughter 10 to 30,000, we don't know how many, but to also establish the longest standing military dictatorship in the Americas, a military dictatorship that I, and Isaias, that I fought in, and that Isaias defended, which is why that scene is kind of pointing in the larger context. And so, um, yes, this, the violence of La Matanza is, is a spike in one of the countries that's the most consistently violent uh, in, in history, um, as you have in La Matanza, for example, which according to scholars at Oxford, like a guy named Oxford, Anders Sandberg, um, at an institute for the future that studies violence around the world, he told me that uh, in terms of the numbers of people killed in a, in a single spot, in a concentrated space per day, per week, El Salvador 1932 is 
possibly the single most violent episode in world history. And so this whole memory of this was covered up, the institutional memory was covered up, and the individual and familial memory. I had to go and literally dig up to go to the mass grave sites where La Matanza was perpetrated. They haven't been dug up, and they're right near grave sites where uh, from the war that haven't been dug up. And those are next to grave sites that are near gang and government mass grave sites. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, that the, the memory that a mass grave site is kind of a way that it's, it's, it's a symbol for me of impunity, mm -hmm. of accumulated impunity and accumulated trauma. And I just want to say before we go on, the book is very hopeful to anybody that reads it. But, but I think the darkness of our history and of our past is the velvet background against which the power and beauty of the Salvadoran people rises to the occasion of themselves, as I try to show. Yeah, yes, I completely agree. I agree also that we've just inherited multiple atrocities in uh, less than a century that have yet to have been acknowledged or atoned. Um, and it's something that you touch throughout the book is the reason why Salvadorans um, are half dead. And so one of the things that uh, I noticed in this chapter specifically was the internal conflict that you felt when interviewing the two survivors. Um, in journalism, journalism can be very transactional. Uh, for some, an interview is just the means to an end or just part of the story um, or just a story. And while there are some phenomenal journalists covering Central America, most reporting tends to lack a complex understanding of Salvadorans. So as a journalist, and specifically as a Salvadoran journalist, what did you take into consideration when you were interviewing survivors of um, a mass genocide like La Matanza? Um, another great question. I'd need a PhD to answer, but... Um... First thing is my own trauma. I think mm. I have to draw on my own experience. I think any journalist does that instinctively if they're any good, right? I, you know, mm. what do I feel that they might be feeling? So I draw on my own experience of war and trauma and other traumas and I, I don't want to trigger them. I don't want anybody to trigger me. You know, I don't, and so I, I do want to try to win their trust to get people to talk, you know, and I'm, I'm ready to kind of be with them over a period of time because, you know, there's, there's kind of parachuting in and then there's actually putting in embedded time. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, you plan for, you plan to get whatever you can in the short term, but you should really, you know, get the story in the long term by embedding yourself. So I've embedded myself in Salvadoran society for my entire life because my parents are from El Salvador, like yours. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. born in San Francisco, but and so, um, and, and listening for cues when people are ready to talk and when they're ready, you know, I, there was a point in, the, in an interview, one of the people, she didn't want to talk anymore. It was clear because she was going back little by little into the, what happened in 1932, but she started looking at like across the street where there's gang graffiti. And so you have like this, the present and the past kind of like, and, and at that point I was like, okay, let's go. I don't want to, I don't want to continue this. I don't want to bring this person to this place like this. Um, so yeah, that's what. Yeah, so you were able to connect with them and you saw their humanity 
Um, and that, that, like everything you just said, uh, brings me to my next point on how important it is, um, how crucial it is to have Central American voices in news stories. Can you talk a little bit about the research that you did in 2018 for the Columbia Journalism Review on how Central Americans are portrayed in the media and why uh, that is so important? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, I, I need to say that in mainstream U.S. media, I suspected and I smelled the the carcass of the fact that um, the United States doesn't believe that Central Americans are capable of telling our own stories. The Salvadoreñas are capable of telling our own stories, right? I, in the literary realm, I launched along with Miriam Gerber and David Bowles, something called Dignidad Literaria, because we have the same pattern in um, literature where people been winning prizes for telling Central American stories, it just ain't Central Americans. <laughs> so no matter how you slice it, we're, we, it comes up zero for us. And so I wanted to kind of prove this in a, in a more kind of social scientific way and a journalistic way. And so I had some volunteers and I look, start analyzing in 2018, the coverage of the child separation crisis. Everybody remembers when there was protests all around the US and you know Donald Trump had been separating all these uh, children from their mothers. And so I wanted to analyze the coverage from the, from the perspective of the sourcing in particular. Like, okay, so if I'm going to write that story, I know I'm going to go to people like Lacey Abrego at UCLA or Suyapa Portillo at Pitcher College at Claremont to talk about Central American issues to bring context to the story, go to the scholars. I'm going to talk to organizations like the one I used to lead, Caresen, Central American Resource Center, to talk to lawyers about Central American lawyers who have deep embedded experience with this community. Or if you know, I want, you know, talk to, you know, Jessica Albarenga, journalist who can help me kind of get some insight if I'm not kind of uh, a member of, in good standing with the Pupus Agencia. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to go, so, you know, there's community leaders, scholars, the Central Americans have been here since the 19th century and an especially large number en masse since uh, the, 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 the since before the 70s. In the 50s, people like my family started coming. So there's a, there's, a, there's a community here that's been here for a long time. And I believe it or not, I think we actually know about ourselves. You may not read us saying it, but I think we know about ourselves. So long story short, I, I, I looked at the coverage in all the major media with these volunteers. You know, we know all the major newsmakers. And it was, it was one of, according to Media Matters, they did a study that showed that was one of the biggest stories of 2018 in terms of the number measured by the amount of stories. Not, and I looked at it and I found, guess how many Central American lawyers, Central American leaders, Central American um, uh, scholar, you know, scholars, Central American community leaders. Yeah. Guess how many I found in, in a story that's centered around Central Americans because the children and the mothers were like, 90% of them were Central American, according to Department of Homeland Security statistics. So guess how many? I know the answers. <laughs> Let me just say in Buen Salvadoreño, ni mierda. Okay, not a one. 
not a one in any of the stories, in any of the major media. Hmm. And so knowing this kind of stuff was what had moved me previous, prior to this, to embark on the journey of this story because, you know, all we had in journalism or in literature with, you know, the number, the, the most, the best known statement about Salvadoran and El Salvador comes from Joan Didion, from her book Salvador. It was, terror is the given of the place. Sounds great. And I even bought into it like, wow, man, she's really deep. She gets the, but then I, I had to like slap myself out <laughs> of the colonial kind of construction of Salvadoranness to realize, hey, I love my abuelita. I love Jocotes. I love being under, you know, I fell in love with a girl in, El Sal in San Salvador. I, and so I, you know, I wrote a book that tried to like rescue uh, our own dignity and our own identity from the deadness, the deadening effect of the colonial gaze of people like U.S. journalism generally and Joan Didion. And so I put in twice, I put in the phrase, love is also the given of the place. Because mm -hmm. I don't deny the terror, I just know the love too. Right, right. Um, and it's kind of like something else that you mentioned in the book is like we're placed in this binary, this violated or violent binary that we can only exist in this in these two spaces. We can't exist as complex human beings that um, can write our own stories too uh, about that. And I think with that also, um, representation and taking control of our own stories also comes um, with its own challenges, especially as journalists. Um, some of the fundamental things we're asked to give up and hide uh, in order to be seen as objective or in what in journalism is considered a reliable narrator. Uh, I personally feel that in like through different um, aspects of journalism, I've had to hide a lot of myself. Um, I can't be this complex person. I'm not, uh, I can't be a complex person and a journalist at the same time. So in the book, we actually find out that you joined uh, the FMLN. Could you talk a little bit about the tension uh, between your former FMLN militancy and the need to hide it in order to work as a journalist? Yeah, I mean, um, this is a very Salvadoreño question because we all know our tendency to secrecy, not just in the FMLN, but in Salvadoran culture generally. Mm -hmm. we, our families have a lot of secrets, like a lot of other families, not just Salvadoran, but we have a lot of layers of silence and secrets in our thing. And I, I connect the dots to military dictatorship and fascism, right? Because the government of El Salvador during the war was a military dictatorship backed by the United States that the United Nations during the war, after right after the war said, was responsible for killing 85% uh, of the 75 to 80,000 people killed. The Salvadoran government, it's US trained military and it's US funded and backed death squads perpetrated things like El Mosote massacre where approximately in a matter of hours, 1,000 people were killed in a town, uh, mostly campesinos, evangelical campesinos who were actually politically probably more inclined to the government. And so, uh, the, 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 the El Mosote massacre, the Ardacat Battalion, um, wiped them out. And only, only until like last year do we find 
because of the forensic work that had to be done with the Argentinians and the Salvadorans that, I, that I've interviewed, and that Mark Danner at the J School has done a, just a fabulous service to the Salvadoran people with, with his book. You know, the, 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 the excavation of this history shows that half of the people killed at El Mosote were children under 12. Yeah. Half of those, and most of those kids were under six. So that's all the context to pe for people to understand why a dude born in San Francisco, California, like me in the Mission District, working class, down the street from the projects, but connected umbilically to El Salvador, decided I had had enough and I'd been visiting El Salvador and I decided to join the fight against the fascist military dictatorship that was led by the Frente Farabundo Martí para Liberación Nacional. And so to be a journalist after the war, you know, I, I became a journalist like in 2004. I came late in my life to it. Um, I, and, and, you know, I, I had, you know, I'm a strategist. People that know me know I do, I do things in the world sometimes, like get, help get rid of the word illegal alien from the Associated Press style book or get rid of Lou Dobbs from CNN. So, uh, so the strategist in me knew that if I was to come out with my red shirt and you know my FMLN background, I wasn't gonna get a Pulitzer grant to go write stories like I got. I wasn't gonna get assignments because being a former guerrillero versus being a former uh, member of the US military say that went to train the Salvadoran troops are gonna get really, that's looked upon favorably and you can be objective if you're a former member of the army, but if you're an ex-guerrilla, those are terrorists or these terms and so, uh, I had to hide, honestly, one of the most noble um, parts of myself. Um, uh, yeah, the part of me that risked my life and that saw the ugly, the most ignoble and noble things there are to see in the world. And I, and I went through that and I, I had to hide it. And so writing the book and, and again, the concept of unforgetting, which comes from the Greek, journey into the underworld where the dead had to forget who they were mm. by crossing the Lathe River, unforget the, the river forgetting. I've seen the perfect title for my book because it was, it was about the unforgetting of our histories as nations, as families, but also as an individual. I had to unforget being in the FMLN, a secret that I held for more than 25 years in my heart, only among my intimate circle. And, and so, you know, I, I want the young people right now who are looking at their world. I came out about it because I wanted the young people looking at their world, you can go do journalism. That's a legitimate and important option right now. It's a pursuit of the truth. But at the same time, there's also the fight for the truth, the fight that we have, the fight of our lives. And so the best way I know to do that was the revolutionary option. And so um, I put that in the book because I want that spirit in there. Um, for, for people to just look, if your heart beats this way, the way mine did before I did what I did, yeah. maybe it's, it's, it echoes something in you. Yeah. And I think I can speak for many young journalists that, and especially young Salvadoran journalists that we're all very grateful that you have jo joined journalism and then paved the way for many of us. Um, and but even when you were even when you were in um, speaking of objectivity, 
um, when you were reporting about the FMLN government, um, your former comrades, um, you faced pushback by them. There's a chapter in the book where you were researching um, when you were at this mass grave and uh, they make you delete the pictures, all of the pictures that you took at the end uh, of all of that research. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, going to do some stuff, for the, some stories for the Boston Globe, who I, I write for sometimes. And I was going to, I was doing the journalistic work that's included in the book. I had already decided I'm going to, you know, do a book. And so I, I, but I had to pay for it. Like any, any journalist out there knows, any author knows you got to pay for it unless you get one of these seven figure deals, like the woman that wrote American Dirt. Uh, <laughs> you know, Janine Clement, yeah. So, so Janine Clement, yeah. So um, I didn't get that seven-figure deal, so I had to go and work for a living. And I, <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I did his stories on on um, on the on the violence in El Salvador, and mm. I went out to these mass grave sites. I got the permission of the the forensics people to take me there, the Instituto de Medicina Legal, and you have to hike into these really dangerous areas. And there had been these conflicts, just like the day before between the gangs and and uh and the mili- and the military and the police right because they're they're kind of actually I was going to say they're fused in El Salvador but hey look at your streets they're fused here yeah. so um and they're fused partly because of El Salvador but that's another story um so like uh you know we went out to this really scary place it reminded me of the war I got the pictures I got part of the story came back to the campsite where we were all the cars were parked and the people from the forensics lab left and they left me there just with the police and the the fiscal the you know attorney general these are all fmlm police and fmlm fiscalists i didn't tell them i was used to be in the you know in the in the frente during the war mm-hmm. but like they suddenly i suddenly the fiscal walks up to me this woman walks and says, hey nos va borrar esas fotos and she forced me to she, she had the police around me at gunpoint to erase my pictures. And so that story is for me poignant because it points to this, the opposite of what we usually get as non-white journalists, mm. which is, you know what? You're not objective about this story, Roberto. You ain't got that red shirt, you're an ex-guerrilla. How the hell can you tell this story that's about this FMLN government? Well, I went to the grave sites. I got what I knew to be the true story and I was ready to report it, and they, my own ex-compañeros forced me. And I ended up reporting it because there's some, some, uh, uh, some, some data recovery specialist that I knew here in San Francisco who helped me recover all my pictures. And I got a three-page spread in the Boston Globe, you know, with color pictures. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I, you know, I'll just reveal that, yeah, I, I gave them payback for erasing <laughs> my pictures. So... Um, it's just, a, that's just for me, a, a, partly a story of, um, it's partly a story of like an edible relationship that we have to nations and to political parties that often fail us, whether we're individuals or ex whatever, but also as journalists. And so we all have that. The, this idea of journalistic objectivity is a, is a questionable enterprise at this stage in human history. If you look at, say, the report that just came out recently, I think yesterday on the way that most people who watch Fox are like 90 something percent Republican. And most people that watch NBC are like 90% re, uh, Democrats. So like we're, we're in this interesting new time journalistically. 
Yeah. And like, in a way, the industry standard for objectivity is in a way contributing to the same outcome of forgetting, of silencing. Um, and my, uh, my last question is actually about U.S. involvement uh, and uh, um, the gangs or the maras. Uh, I learned some new context and pieces of history from your book, including that the word Mara came from a couple of little punk rock kids. Um, but also my understanding of the links between U.S. violence and the violence in El Salvador shifted. Uh, I've always had an understanding of the gangs just being violent and people faced violence from them. But I didn't realize the connection between U.S. police violence in the States and the ways that the gangs were being brutalized by the police in El Salvador. So can you talk about the influence of William Barr and Rudy Giuliani's broken window policy and the Mano Dura in El Salvador? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Another great question. Um, I'm just warning people of my, something said, my computer just said it's, my connection is unstable. So uh, if I, you know, We'll figure it out if something happens. But, um, yeah, it's a great question, Jessica. Another great question. Um, and I'm enjoying conversing with you. And I'm so grateful they picked that we got a Salvadoreña to do this. You know, it means a lot to me. It's the first of a month of events I'm going to have with Salvadoreños uh, talking about the book. So, um, yeah, I mean, my, my point in, in, in bringing in Will, uh, William Barr was to do my journalistic duty, which was report the facts. But it was also to show the way I report or I write about gangs. I don't artificially separate gangs from the policing that creates them, right? If you look at, and so you look at the, the you know, MS-13 started off as a bunch of stoner kids listening to punk rock and uh, not hard rock like, Ronnie James Dio, Metallica, and other, you know, heavy metal groups, and smoking pot and, you know, coming together out of immigrant loneliness. And so uh, in LA, in Los Angeles, in Pico Union, migrant kids, and these kids suddenly found themselves being pressured by larger, more well-equipped uh, gangs like the Mexican Mafia, like the Crips and the Bloods. And so these kids found themselves having to get ar armed themselves, but they weren't armed. They lacked two major arms to really kind of fight back in, a, in a, an effective way early on. One of them was they didn't have the money for AK-47s, M16s, and some of the other guns, semi-automatic weapons that were standard, the Uzis, for these other larger gangs. Then they lacked the especially powerful weapon of U.S. citizenship. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, 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 these young people, I would, I would see them when I was in L.A. at Caresen in the early 90s. They would go to Liborio's market and buy uh, machetes to defend themselves with. And so the media, members of the media like Lisa Ling at National Geographic, sorry, Lisa, but it's true, and, mm -hmm. um, and LAPD, and I, later on I find out that Federal authorities were also starting to pay attention. It started to frame the story as one of um, these extremely violent, yeah, because of the use of machetes, as if 
shooting somebody, and I hate to be graphic and triggering to people, but I need to make my point. Shooting somebody in the face with an Uzi is somehow less violent than a machete in the neck or something. Mm-hmm. This is the ridiculous premise that under undergirds the idea of MS-13 as a the most violent gang in the world, or Donald Trump right now. So, so throughout this time and since the 90s, William Barr has helped to manufacture and frame this story. As remember the Bush uh, Attorney General during the LA riots. So he deployed, he, he led the biggest redeployment of FBI resources after the LA riots and focused it on gangs. He uh, then sent, after the war, sent trainers to train the Salvadoran police in US style policing. Mm. And then I also found out that the Pentagon sent the trainers that trained people like Isaias mm-hmm. from in the school, mm-hmm. the America's type, they sent those trainers to train, guess who? LAPD, Seattle PD, NYPD. So, and I, I, you know, I've got these quotes from these, um, these police, you know, these cops who are bragging about getting this training from these guys from Central America who just came from the jungles. And so, um, William Barr, the Pentagon, members of the media helped to construct this cottage industry in MS-13 as the most violent gang. When in fact, when Donald Trump just had, along with William Barr, a press conference in July. They had a press conference where um, it was all focused on MS-13 and they were going to introduce new kind of instruments to label them terrorists and pursue them as terrorists. So, you know, I, being me, I said, okay, well, what's the, what's the, what's the factual homicide statistic basis for this? And I called police forces in all the major areas like Alexandria, Virginia, uh, Long Island, where Trump draws a lot of his support from those cops on this issue, mm-hmm. LAPD here in San Francisco. And what did I find in terms of the numbers of homicides in 2019, which were the most recent, like up to date? In San, here in San Francisco, MS-13 had killed all of two people in 2019, mm. zero in, in 2020. In Long Island, which is the center of Trump's kind of crusade, uh, there's an average of 5.5 killings by MS-13 uh, in it per year for the last 10 years. And remember, there are a lot of MS-13 members. So when you look at the way the story is told and you look at the facts, they don't go together. And so I found out, uh, and you'll see this in a piece I'm going to publish, that a handful of white supremacists holding semi-automatic weapons in uh, Dayton, in El Paso, in 2019, killed more than the 10,000 MS-13 members the FBI estimates are in the United States. Uh, In one month, they killed more, the white supremacists killed more um, people than all of MS, 10,000 MS-13 in a single year. That should give you some sense of the yeah. We know the imbalance is there, but when you start looking at it journalistically, it's, it's, a, it's an obscenity to say the least. Yes. 
Yes, I completely agree. So we are coming uh, close to the end of our time um, and want to leave uh, some questions for the audience. But uh, before we do, um, we're, I want to read the poem that Roque Dalton wrote that you reference a lot throughout the book. Um, and so everyone that tuned in late, uh, again, uh, my name is Jess Alvarenga, and I'm in conversation with Roberto Loato on his new book, Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. So we are going to read, um, and then everyone, um, everyone in the audience, if you have any questions for Roberto, please insert them in the chat. We are uh, moderating uh, those questions. Um, we already have a couple coming up. Um, let me find the poem. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to take it away, Roberto? Yeah, you want me to read in Spanish? Yeah, read in Spanish. I'll read the English version. Okay, this is a book about like what happened in 1932, and it was written by Roque Dalton, who was a uh, former, he was a guerrero poet, a poet warrior, which is kind of something I talk about in the book, because that's also something I think we're going to need before the, the intersecting catastrophes that we're facing, not just in the United States, but around the world. We're going to need something of a, what sociologists call a millenarian sensibility, and so my experience of millenarianism comes from being a part of a revolutionary guerrilla organization. So Roque Dalton was a part of that. He was way on earlier though in the 70s and he was also El Salvador's greatest poet and one of the great poets of Latin America. So he wrote this book about 19, he wrote this poem called Todos and it goes as follows in Spanish. Todos nacimos medio muertos en 1932. Sobre, sobrevivimos pero medio vivos. Cada uno con una cuenta de 30,000 muertos enteros que se puso a engordar sus intereses, sus réditos, y que hoy alcanza por untar de muerte a los que siguen naciendo, medio muertos, medio vivos. Todos nacimos medio muertos en 1932. Ser salvadoreño es ser medio muerto. Es que se mueve, eso que se mueve es la mitad de la vida que nos dejaron. Y como todos somos medio muertos, los asesinos presumen no solamente de estar totalmente vivos, sino también de ser inmortales. Pero ellos también están medio muertos y solo vivos a medias. Unámonos medio muertos que somos la patria para hijos suyos podernos llamar. En nombre de todos los asesinados, unámonos contra los asesinos de todos, contra los asesinos de los muertos y los medio muertos. Todos juntos tenemos más muerte que ellos, pero todos juntos tenemos más vida que ellos. La todopoderosa unión de, nuestra, de, de nuestras medias vidas, de las medias vidas de todos los que nacimos medio muertos en 1932. So I'll read the English uh, translation. Translated by me and Javier Zamora, yeah. Please recognize my, my fellow compatriota poeta. Yeah, Javier Zamora, which Saire Quevedo did an amazing um, podcast on um, Javier Zamora's journey, The Return. So everyone Berkeley grad. Berkeley grad. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. All these Salvadorians making creative magic. I love it. 
We were all born half dead in 1932, alive, but half alive. Each one of us with a bank account of 30,000 fully dead, fattened with interest, with profits, that today have grown enough to spread death onto those that keep being born, half dead, half alive. We were all born half dead in 1932. To be Salvadoran is to be half dead, that which moves is the half of the life they left us. And because we're all half dead, the murderers presume not only that they're completely alive, but also immortal. But they're also half dead and only half living. Let's unite half dead of our nation so that we can call ourselves your children in the name of the murdered. Let's unite against the murderers of all, against the murderers of the dead and the half dead. Together, all of us, we have more death than them. But all of us together, we have more life than them. The almighty union of our half lives, of the half lives of every one of us that were born half dead in 1932. And translated by Roberto Lovato and Javier Zamora. Powerful. Um, I've been really enjoying this conversation. So I am going to take a couple of questions from... Uh, the audience. So Laura Perez writes, powerful Roberto, gracias. And thanks for a shout out to LRC. Uh, la pregunta, you mentioned centuries of violence. Could you say more about how you connect this to the scene of dehumanizing military training you read? Yeah. Um, for anything, again, I want to thank you know, the J School and LRC because, you know, they, 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 they really stepped up without even blinking to support this and LRC in particular like supported me as a fellow for three years and I started some of the thinking about this at LRC, at LRC while I was there so um, LRC matters too. Um, good question another one of these PhD type questions I'm not going to answer I need a you know a whole book to answer but uh, the book that I did write looks at the way that like for example that scene with Isaias Isaias had, I was in a car with another person, by the way, there's a tension in the car, I couldn't bring in because it would have been the whole chapter, but mm -hmm. there was an indigenous man uh, named Reynaldo Patria, Patris, who was, you know, he still has indigenous identity, one of the like less than 1% of Salvadorians who's identified as indigenous and who, you know, <coughs> tried to practice his language and, you know, advocate and, 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 and act in the material world on behalf of his community. And so Reynaldo's an ex-guerrero too, but I didn't tell Isaias that. Just like I didn't tell uh, Reynaldo that Isaias was an ex-cop, I mean, an ex-military guy. And so like, there's a tension in, the, in, this, in this little beat up taxi that's the tension of Salvadoran history because if you look at uh, Reynaldo, he looks less indigenous than Isaias. Isaias had strong, very dark features, but the military cut. And Isaias was lighter skin, had mustache, goatee. And so, um, um, and he was a lot lighter skinned. And so um, there in one car, you have Salvadoran history, the, the history of the amnesia that makes for good soldiers, right? I, whether it's LAPD or the U.S. military, or the Salvadoran military, the death squads, uh, they're all made possible by forgetting, by amnesia. You know, um, 
Um, and, and like Hannah Arendt, the German philosopher that I kind of like sometimes when she's not being overly liberal, she had this statement that said, you know, terror enforces oblivion. I kind of turn that around and I add to it by saying oblivion enforces terror. Through the psychology, the training, the education given to our police forces and our militaries to have these ideas about themselves that go back a long way. I mean, the, the, the conquistadores that came to the new world understood they needed to disconnect um, the indigenous people from their histories, right? In order to turn them into good soldiers, eventually. The nation state of El Salvador did the same thing. It drew people away from the indigenous military armies into the Salvadoran military and allegiance to the flag. I mean, the flag, I mean, there, I start off the book with a quote by a guy named Ernst Renan, a great uh, French philosopher of the nation who basically said, nations are about forgetting, <laughs> right? And, and forgetting enables violence. And so I'm trying to show the workings of this in, in the short history that I cover, but this runs, this rabbit hole of forgetting and violence runs way deep. Forgetting is a form of violence oftentimes. Right. Agreed. Okay, our next question um, is from Diego Salinas. Um, it's a little bit long, so I'll read um, parts of it. Um, Diego writes, I was born in El Salvador and came to the U.S. when I was five in 2001, indocumentado. While I was raised with a strong ties to El Salvador, it always conflict. I was always conflicted by the fact that I never knew anything about the history of my country, especially from the time of the war and before. My dad tells me the occasional horror story from the wartime, but a lot of the larger political ideological context is missing, aside from assurances that both sides committed atrocities. Your book has given me the language and the context to begin to unforget. Oops, I lost my place. Um, unforget with my family. During that unforgetting process, I can feel an underlying tension between myself and my dad. I want to engage with my dad about the ideology and political buildup to the war that ravaged his childhood, but I find myself quickly out of the depths when compared with the trauma my dad experienced. The question is, what is a resource that could help me further my understanding of the specific political day-to-day -day of wartime, of the wartime? God, I would never want anybody to understand well, I don't know if it can be understood. Um, but I think the most important instrument in terms of your dad and your family history is your heart and your mind, the heart mind. I think uh, our, I used to, I, I, oh, by the way, when, you're, when, you, when, when Diego's father says that both sides perpetrated violence, that's true. Mm -hmm. Except that, remember, the United Nations Truth Commission, which was bipartisan, established after the war, found that um, five percent of the killings of the seventy-five to eighty thousand innocents were perpetrated by the FMLN. Eighty-five percent were perpetrated by the Salvadoran mm -hmm. military and death squads. So, you know, to go around these don't I, I didn't confront my father. I learned not to confront. I learned to lead with my heart and with my mind in relation to my parents, who I who gave me a lot of this history that I had to excavate. Because like I grew up without any pictures of my father, of my father's family, my grandfather. The only picture was my abuelita, Mamate. 
And so I had to go in and be like this detective I used to like as a kid, Columbo, in the 70s. And I became Detective Columbo to find out, you know, the family secrets initially. And then as an adult, as a journalist, and as a, you know, kind of whatever, an author, I, I, I started approaching them differently. And I think, um, you know, you can do archival research, you can do um, journalistic report, reportage, talk with people, you can, um, but with your own family, you have to really, they have to feel comfortable enough to spill the beans because there's a, there's a lot of beans there and they're not going to spill them because of trauma and triggering and things. So there's, you've got to find these indirect ways that take time to draw it out. But I think it's a worthwhile and necessary journey to do that with our padres, but also with our patria, with the nations, which is one of the main points of my book too. We have to excavate the forgotten histories of nations. Like my book is as much about the United States and its role in mass producing mass murder, mass amnesia that protects it. Like you just had this past week, uh, the, a judge required uh, the Salvador military to open up its archives of the El Mosote massacre that I mentioned where all those kids were killed. Mm -hmm. Well, the Salvadoran government of Nayib Bukele said, no, Nelis Pastelis, we're not going to do that. And so um, the struggle for memory is the struggle for the future as much as anything. And so uh, whether it's in our families or in nations. And, and so, yeah, my book is as much about the U.S. because, again, I was born here. And it tells about, in a way, about the birth of the Salvadoran community in the U.S. because I was here before most of y'all. <laughs> right, but most of y'all, the students, that is right. You, I saw you come. I was waiting for you to arrive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you for that. Um, and Rafael um, uh, Guisar the uh, third writes uh, or asks a question: What do you, Roberto, thinks needs to be done or can be done on an individual on an individual level to stop the media from perpetrating this narrative or? of violent Central Americans? Well, I think it's an individual question, but it has to be, it has to have social answers as well, right? As Salvadoreños, we were, we are nothing if not a highly organized people. As I document in the book, um, one of every three Salvadoreños was organized against the state during the war. Imagine if we had that right now in the United States. If one of every three of us decided to take up and oppose, um, the government by any means necessary. Like, I'm not advocating armed struggle or anything, but, you know, imagine if we had people that adopted radicalized politics like that. It would be a different country. We'd be in a different situation. And so um, there's an individual component and a social component, but the individual part, uh, I, I try to do it by example. I want people to read my book and say, hey, man, I got stories like that. I'm going to tell my story because I want all of you to own mm -hmm. research and tell your own stories and be as dogged in telling this and getting the story, but also dogged in getting it to the right place to be told. We can't allow ourselves to be marginalized. We need, like I, I, I along with Miriam and David, we launched Dignidad Literaria because less than about 1% of U.S. literature is Latino. So that's a astonishing yeah. and pathetic number, if ever there was one. So, and you have to, I think the spirit with which I approach storytelling 
is as a matter of life and death. Mm. Because I remember from El Salvador when people would see on television this guy named Roberto Dabuison, who was the founder of the Death Squads. He would say, he would go on television, he would start telling a story about nuns, about priests, about members of the opposition. And guess what happened after he came out on television? Oftentimes, those people would be found dead, right, by Escuadrones de la Muerte that Roberto Dabuison founded. So he told a story that enabled the death. You, we as humans can't kill somebody as human, something about us. And so we have to humanize ourselves as an issue of life and death right now at a time of such epic crisis. And that's why I decided, shit, man, I don't have the best Salvador story, but I've seen a few things. And I'm going to get, whether it's because you're inspired or because you, as a Salvadoreño, say, puta, hello, vato no sabe ni mierda, yo voy a contar mi historia. Whatever your purpose, go out and tell your story like your life depends on it. Because in a collective way and in the world we live in right now, you have to tell your story to, of our story so that we are more human than the people that perpetrated El Paso, La Matanza, and any other killings perpetrated. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like uh, you just uh, answered Victor Vasquez's question, which asks, what can I do as a Salvadoran American academic to give back to my roots, the Salvadoran people? And I feel like you just answered that completely, which is um, storytelling is a way that we give back and unforget together. And together we're writing a collective story of ourselves. Um, as can I add one of the, one of the, I mean, we have to fight socially too. We have to fight. Like, you remember that word illegal alien? Mm-hmm. I hated that word as a journalist. Mm-hmm. So dehumanizing. And often I saw the connection between that word, all the major dailies and, and all the, lot, most of the coverage, and the violent policies and the violence in the streets perpetrated against migrants. So I approached people at the Applied Research Center. I said, hey, I got this idea for this campaign. Let's do the drop the I word. And there was born that campaign. Or when we got Lou Dobbs off of CNN, uh, who was, people don't know, look him up. He was basically John the Baptist to, 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 to uh, John the evil Baptist to uh, Donald Trump, right? Uh, mm-hmm. he, he laid the foundation in anti-immigrant media and promotion like no one else. And so we helped get him off of CNN. So we have to kind of like hold the institutions accountable, whether it's, uh, and in this case, the media and, mm-hmm. and literature and academia. I'm sorry, our, our, our sponsors here are responsive. <laughs> have a, a great dean right now in the J school because of students, you know, and you have, you know, you have a, a Latinx resource center that's, better funded and supporting organically the community because of students waking up and taking a role, a hand in things alongside professors oftentimes. I'm not, it's not always antagonistic between professors and students. I used to be a bootleg chair of an academic program. So I can tell you, uh, it doesn't always have to be antagonistic. Yes, yes, I agree. It comes from the bottom and comes from the people. Completely agree. Um, So the um, next question, Brian Chavez Castro asks, 
What is the significance of La Matanza of 1932 and how does it help us understand the other two historical moments, namely the 1980 Civil War and the present day migration crisis the book delves into? Yes, you want to add, respond to that? You, you're really taken with this issue. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we need to really explore um, La Matanza, and it, it begins there. That's the beginning of the end, um, and something that you touch a lot in the book, and acknowledging um, all of the atrocities that have been committed to us, um, and how I really I really like exploring what intergenerational trauma. Um, and how that just keeps manifesting among generation and generation. And we can't fully heal as like human beings um, if we're still being haunted by all of these um, traumatic events. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's extremely hard and it's painful. I can just imagine writing this book, how painful it was to really just like open your wounds and really like explore them and see like, oh shit, like, yeah, that's happened. Or like, oh shit, my dad is this way because of like all of the things that Ramoncito lived through. Yeah, great response. I, I agree. I uh, I should say if anybody's thinking of pursuing something like this, that I retained a therapist before embarking on this because I knew that I was going to open the Pandora's box of my own lived and accumulated and inherited trauma. So I wouldn't advise people to do something like this without really thinking through kind of the foundation on which you're going to work. And it will kind of work beautifully because I got blessed with a great therapist who was a kind of had a father who had witnessed like the Holocaust and survived it and was really out of the box in his thinking and just, you know, really helped me carry through so that writing the book became cathartic. I th I'm getting that response from people too. People are like crying mm -hmm. reading the book and they're like um, feeling like there's like healing in it. I, that was part of my own process. And I'm so happy when people kind of experience it that way. Um, I think La Matanza, we have to be clear, is not the only nor the first major episode of violence. El Salvador from its foundation in 1821 has had the most consistent violence in you know, some of the most consistently violent, it's been one of the most consistently violent places in the Americas. And so, um, you know, nations of, by their nature are violent. Um, you know, that's part of the point of nations. Nations were, you, you create a flag like the Salvadoran flag or the U.S. flag, not because it's some religious thing, but you want to inspire religious feeling mm -hmm. that get people to cry and to feel strongly to the point where they'll go kill or die for it. Right, that's you can look at that. There's people like Patricia, another Albarenga. <laughs> Patricia Albarenga wrote a great book about um, kind of indigenous identity and nations and the way that El Salvador um, kind of, you know, the nation of El Salvador is this violent entity, but so was the nation of the United States, right? So, mm -hmm. yes, yes, I uh, completely agree. So our last question, because we are really running um, short on time. Um, you talk about preparing the book and the challenges um, along the way. And Yuri uh, Guzman asks, did you face any obstacles in newsrooms when you were trying to tell stories about Central Americans? About Central America. Yeah. 
The big obstacle is this one right here. See this? Can you see it? Brown skin. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm brown. All right. That's number one. Just recognize. I don't, I mean, I pursue journalism, but just really do your, your topography. Map out the terrain. Be realistic. I think oftentimes in schools we set students up, you know, and we don't give them the lay of the land. I know this from MFA programs. You, train, you, you show people how to write, how to write, but then you don't tell them about the publishing industry. Mm. So number one is that big obstacle that, you know, number two was white supremacy that reigns in many newsrooms today, unfortunately. Um, number three is kind of the, the positionality of, of people that are Mexican, Dominican, Guatemalan, Colombian, Salvadoran, Latinx. We are not part of the national conversation of the United States in any way, shape, or form proportional to our numbers. Just mm. look at your Sunday talk shows. If Sunday talk shows were a measure of our humanity, we would be amoebas because we don't exist there. And so, um, you know, we, we have to recognize that we are kind of like way on the margin and we have to fight our way in. I mean, there is another way which you can go the kind of like dance minstrelsy mode, mm. right? But I see that as an obstacle in literature but it's, and in journalism where we become journalists, but what kind of journalists are you going to be? Especially mm. at a moment like this. At a moment like this, you young people need to rise to the occasion of yourselves to really do the journalism that helps the process of saving the planet from humanity. or saving humanity from humanity. And so, um, you know, really, really, the rather than talk about obstacles, I like to talk about, like, inspiration, right? Like, vision. So... Like I said, my book is not just a heavy book. The heaviness is, and the darkness is the back velvet background to the inspired story of the Salvadoran people and their struggle over decades, over centuries. We are a powerful people as anyone. And it's my distinct honor to be able to be the first to tell this in a nonfiction way. Mm. And I took that as a, as a high calling. And so that's, I'm just illustrating what I, how I interpret it, you know, I, I, you respond to your, like, I don't advise students to pursue a career. The career logic is saturated with business and capitalistic ideology. I encourage people to pursue their vocation, which comes from voice. Find your voice, find your, the things that you are drawn to in the world that you're willing to to, to tell stories about or to fight for or whatever, but, mm. um, you know, vocation, find your vocation and then everything else will fall into place and follow once you've done the work to find your vocation. And the obstacles, like you read my story, I've been through some things. Yeah. I've survived them and I've survived to write and to fight another day because mm -hmm. I had this thing I needed to do. Mm -hmm. not just tell the story, but to, to do it right and to do it as beautifully as possible. So uh, that's my, les acabo de dar lo mejorcito que tengo. That's my best. En nombre, gracias. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I thank you for such an inspirational um, response. And it's really our turn as storytellers um, to pick up the to pick up the pen and write our own stories. Um, well, thank, Roberto, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, everybody, don't forget to buy Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution. Uh, in the Americas at your favorite independent bookstore. I highly recommend it. It's out now. Hope you bookmark it just as much as I did. Um, so, and thank you. Thank you for everyone joining us in this event. Thank you. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.